Just think of a time when you were in total darkness. Without light, there is no way to see. As we join Davidson for our study of Acts chapter 9, Dr. Luke, our first century historian, tells us a riveting story about Jesus blinding a man so that he could help him see. It's one of the most dramatic conversion stories in the Bible. Remember a time when you were in absolute total darkness? Anybody remember that time? For my wife, Mary, and our kids, we were in the eighth cave up in Seattle, Washington. It's right by St. Helens. You've all been in the Inner Space Cave uh, down here, down 35. Anybody ever been down in Inner Space Cave? And they take you deep underneath I-35. Then they kill the lights. But you're all protected when they do that. They've got a guy there and everything. This ape cave thing was a do-it-yourself hike. We found out from some native Washingtonians that this ape cave, this old ancient lava flow was available. They told us how to get there. We actually hiked way back up this trail, ducked underneath a bush. There was a hole in the ground. We had collected our flashlights, several batteries. We had water, and we slithered down through this hole. And for the next several hours, we climbed up rocks, slithered under these little plates you could get through, slithered down the other side. But we got halfway through there, and we killed our lights. Put your hand right in front of your face. Nothing. Look down at your feet. Nothing. Remember that? Blindness, total darkness, there was absolutely no way we were going to find our way back to the light. If you turn to Acts chapter 9 today, we have an incredible ironic story where the Lord from heaven actually blinds a man so that he can see. Maybe you need to be blinded this morning so that you can see. And our story begins as you turn to Acts chapter 9. The headlines in Jerusalem, if they would have had headlines back then, instead of saying Rupert Murdoch's whole uh, newspaper industry is coming crashing down to England, the newspaper headings in Jerusalem would have read like this. They would have read, Rabbi on a mission to Damascus, followers of the way destroyed. In other words, when we begin this text today, we're going to actually begin with a, mind, with a man who's very religious. He thinks he can see. In fact, he thinks he can see God so clearly that he's on a mission in order to preserve his religion, in order to purify his religion, in order to serve his God. He's on a mission. Let's read it. Turn to Acts chapter 9. The story begins with meanwhile. Now that takes you back to Acts chapter 8. At the beginning of Acts chapter 8 verse 3, we have the Apostle Paul imprisoning and going around Jerusalem actually arresting men and women. As we begin chapter 9, we're going to pick up that story of this young rabbi from Tarsus, trained by Gamaliel. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and now he wants to take his mission to destroy the followers of the way even farther. Look what it says. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So Saul is the enemy. How many of you would call yourself the Lord's disciples? What is a disciple? A disciple isn't just one of those 12 guys you put up on your wall, the founders of the church. They're very important, but what a disciple is, it's someone that decides they're going to follow somebody. 
They're actually going to obey a teacher. And this is one of Luke's incredibly powerful ways to describe who Saul of Tarsus' enemies are. They have decided they're going to follow Jesus. They would have been those in Acts chapter 3, as Peter gave the message at Pentecost, that they were pricked in their heart and they decided Jesus is the Messiah. They would have been those when Peter and John were speaking in the temple, in Solomon's colonnade, and they were convicted in their hearts and they decided we're going to become followers of the way. Saul, as an Orthodox Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, wants to take them out. That's the tension in the story. Saul thinks he's a good guy. He thinks all of us who follow Jesus are the bad guys. So he's still breathing out threats. It says he went right to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. What we have here is this powerful, proud, he's a proud, arrogant persecutor, and he's trying to spread his terrible terror up into Damascus. Now, if you were a believer that was persecuted in Jerusalem, and then you flee to Damascus 150 miles to the north, now you feel you're safe. Suddenly you get word this terror is bringing a band with him, and this is all a Jewish thing at the time. That's why he's going to the high priest Caiaphas in Jerusalem to get these papers because he'll come up to Damascus. There's several synagogues, large Jewish population, and he's going to go from synagogue to synagogue and he's going to grab both men and women. So I want all of you ladies to know that it was equal in the first century. You were father of the way. Men were father of the way. Saul didn't discriminate. You could both be arrested. And it shows us the role that the women played even there in the first century in the church. So it says that he's going to grab the, both the men and the women who might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now how would you feel if you received the news? This is really bad news. Now what I want all of you to think of at this time is you experience persecution. Some of you at school, you have people that mock you. Some of you at work have a boss that blocks you. I want you right now to think of the most notorious person who curses Jesus and turns away from him. And I want to ask you, what do you believe about that person? Dan just told me this morning as we were praying as a group of elders, he was telling me that Governor Perry decided we need to pray for rain. Some of you have heard about that, right? And we need to fast and ask the Lord to send rain. We're in a terrible situation. Very biblical idea. The Lord tells us that he is the giver of the rain. There's an atheist that sued him. What's your first response to that? Get him. Let's take him out. What right do those atheists have to do that? Have you prayed for him? You think Jesus could save him? Man alive, if a guy's that uptight that... He wants to sue somebody because they're praying for rain when we all desperately need it. Even I'm an atheist. Who cares? Let's do anything. The fact that he has that much venom shows that he probably was abused by a so-called believer. He probably has a story. And you're going to contribute to his story of hate unless you believe that Jesus wants to save his enemies. Do you believe that? Do you know that's the most powerful force on this planet? You say, Dave, I don't really believe that. Well, Saul was the worst enemy in the first century church so far. In fact, I could make a case for he was the worst 
sky against the followers of the way in all of the first century. But you've got an incredible Savior. And when you feel threatened and when you are afraid and when you are persecuted, you tend to think there's a part of us and I feel it with you. Let's get them. And what the Lord wants to teach us to do is to read these first century accounts. What's the Lord going to do with this proud persecutor? Look what happens. Can the Lord, how many of you believe the Lord Jesus can handle his enemy? How many think that? Can Jesus handle your enemies? How many of you are followers of Jesus? Do you need to feel threatened? Do you need to feel that all is lost? Now, I know you sit here piously. Now you're part of a, a worldwide movement, the biggest movement in all of human history, you know, two billion people that so-called follow Jesus. But in the first century, man, when you were a little father of the way, you're a little Jewish person, you lost your job, some of your friends have been murdered, you run to Damascus and you get this news, Saul's after you. I would have said, man, forget it. Man, I need to order, organize a militia. I need to get some AK 47. I need to take out this guy. But it's not what the early church did. Because they had a Savior. They understood who the Savior was. What's your Savior going to do with the most powerful, arrogant, vicious killer trying to take out the follower of the way? Look what happens. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, so near the end of this journey to the north, He's coming in through this, going to be very close, very soon to be going through the southern gate to Damascus, into the city. It says, as he was drawing near, that suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, when my mom used to holler out, David, David, anybody identify with that? Double names are serious stuff. Any of you parents ever call out your kid's first name over and over again? When Saul heard this, this is the ultimate parent from heaven. Saul, Saul. Notice it's a great light from heaven. So some of you are dealing with death. We have several in our church family to be in praying with. We have moms. We need to pray for Melanie's mom. She's on a hospice. We need to pray for her. She's going through that terrible struggle with death that Mary and I have gone through with our parents. Some of you have gone through it. Pray for Melanie. It's hard to believe in the light from heaven when there's so much darkness in the suffering of a hospital. Dale and Becky, their daughter, suffered from a terrible illness for years. She's very close to death. They're the church family. We need to minister to them. Jerry has ALS. He's a retired fireman. He's gone to church for years, raised his family here. He was a robust fireman. He's at Veterans Hospital. And some of you that look around the room right here have ministered to Jerry. I don't know how many more days that Jerry has. His family, Matt and his wife, and Bailey, their daughter, needs your support. Those are times of great death. One of the great things we can do as believers is that we can be brothers and sisters with one another. And in these times of darkness as we deal with death, there's a great light in heaven. Amen? And someday, if you know Jesus, you're going to see that light. That's what this text is about. Every once in a while, the Lord Jesus breaks the barrier between the heavenly kingdom where all is done as his will is 
on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for that. Every once in a while, the Lord breaks that. He does that down through the centuries. He did it at Mount Sinai. He did it with Ezekiel when he saw the vision of the mighty chariot of God. He did it with the worst enemy of the church in the first century. Jesus is a great light. As you think about why we sing to praise Jesus, he is the God that dwells in inapproachable light. And it's a blinding light. It's like looking at the sun. And so when you're so discouraged and you feel that there's no hope, I want you to understand that in Christ, your destiny is you're going to be clothed in this incredible immortal body that's going to be glorious and radiating light. So Jesus just lets the, this terrible enemy see him in all of his glory, just like at the transfiguration. And then he speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? If you're discouraged today, if you wonder, like, poor little me, I lost my job because of Jesus, or I feel persecuted, I lost a friend because of Jesus, I want you to know something. If you're on Jesus' side, in the end, you win. Because anyone that touches you touches Jesus. When Martin Burnham got killed in the Philippines, Jesus was right there and experienced that death with him. And he took his son home to be with him. And Jesus is very angry about what he's done, but in his incredible grace, he's still trying to reach out, just like Gracia Burnham teaches in her books, as this widow, she's saying, but the Lord's teaching me to love those that murdered my husband because the Lord still cares for radical Islamic Philip, Southern Philippine terrorist groups that need Jesus. That's what this text is about. Whenever a believer, a follower of Jesus suffers persecution, Jesus suffers. That's what this text is saying. So Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, you're messing with, with my church. He could have said that. But his union with the church is so powerful, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because if you know Jesus is your Savior, you're united with Jesus so closely that anything that happens to you happens to your Savior, which is an incredible comfort because it means that Jesus is going through it with you. But it also means if someone that hurts you and persecutes you doesn't ever turn away from that and let the blood of Jesus cover them, then they're going to pay for it. There's going to be justice. So you don't need to be intimidated. I don't need to be intimidated. We don't need to be afraid. Notice what Paul said, Saul said. He says, who are you, Lord, as a Jew, when you get knocked to the ground with a radiating light from heaven, you know you're talking with the divine because you've got several Old Testament passages that speak about the presence of God being this incredible radiating light. So he knows whoever this voice is, it's the Lord of heaven. In fact, the word that she uses, the word in Greek that could mean sir, but in this context it means far more than sir. It's the word that she used to translate it, I am, the great tetragrammaton in the Old Testament. So what Dr. Luke wants you to understand is that Saul, as he's driven to his knees, knows that he's receiving a message, he's hearing a voice, he is blinded by this incredible light, it's I am, it's the Lord that's speaking to him. But notice the connection here. If you are from a Jehovah's Witness background, 
I just talked to you about Jehovah. But I want you to see the identity that Luke makes. Very important. The Lord from heaven says, I'm Jesus. That's a very powerful, important connection. Did you get it? The great I am that radiates from heaven, that has ascended to heaven, is the I am. He's Yahweh of the Old Testament. If you're going to be truly a Jehovah's witness, then who do you witness to? Jesus. Jesus is fully divine. That's what Luke just told you. And Saul is putting it together very powerfully because the great I am has driven him to his face. And then he identifies himself. I'm Jesus. That's an incredible thing. And always make sure you understand that connection. He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He replied, now get up, go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, so they heard this voice and kind of like when Jesus was baptized, my son, my son, whom I'm well pleased, you know, hear him. The people around kind of heard this rumbling, they heard this, but if you don't want to hear the voice of God, you're not going to hear it. God doesn't shine his light on everybody. If you really open your heart, Jesus will speak to you. But all these fellows traveling with Saul, they missed it. They didn't get it as far as the story is told. They just heard this rumbling. Saul gets up his feet. It says, Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat anything. So now we have the guy that thought he could see, the great religionist, and religionists always think they can see, but they always end up blind, and they're actually persecuting the very one that they think they're serving. I want to understand that that's how deep our darkness is. And the only way, if you're a proud, arrogant religionist, the only way that you're going to come to really know the living God, you're going to have to get flat on your face and be blind. Only the person that admits he was blind. This is one of Jesus' great teachings. Jesus would say to the religious leaders of his day, I wish you were blind. I wish you knew you were blind because then you could see. There's a great irony. Only the blind are going to see. And all those that think they can see, all the proud scientists, all the proud academics, all the proud politicians, all the proud military people, anyone that has pride that never admits that they're blind, they're going to weasel through their whatever it is, 80 years, think they know everything, and then they're going to find out that they're face-to-face with blazing justice and truth and light. And the littlest kid that knows Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, has the light. And the great PhD is as blind as a bat, and they'll be lost forever and ever Because you have to come into God's kingdom flat on your face. Did you hear me? It's very important. The living God of the universe could have made it that Einstein figured it out and he gets there. But nobody in this room would make it. But the littlest child in this room can understand Jesus is the light. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Jesus loves little children, all the little children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. For God so loved the world that he gave the only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should never perish. So this religionist is driven to his feet, and the point of the story is, will he receive his sight? 
Now we have the closing part of the story. We've got a reluctant believer, and I love this because he's a lot like me. If you got news that this persecuting, horrible guy was going to you know, be part of the kingdom, it would drive me nuts. So look what it says. Adonias, whose name means Yahweh's gracious, the Lord appears to him in a vision. So we have two visions. The Lord appears to Saul, this proud, arrogant persecutor. Now he's going to appear to this reluctant and yet obedient disciple. Adonias' name means Yahweh is gracious. He says, I want you to go to the house of Judas. It's on Straight Street, which you can still visit in Damascus today. It's the east-west street, perfectly straight. He says, I want you to go there, for he's praying. I'm sure Ananias goes, yeah, he's praying that he'll be able to kill all of us. In a vision, he had seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands at him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has come with the authority of the chief priests and to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, and his name, Ananias' name, means Yahweh is gracious. But, he, but the Lord has to teach him again what the meaning of his name is. I want you to go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias, this is the great obedience. You're never going to have God's power rest upon you until you go. You've got to obey. Ananias was reluctant but what made the difference is he obeys. He placed his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul. <laughs> that was great right there. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. The Lord, notice again the equivalency to Jesus. He's appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. He sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up. He was baptized. And after taking some food, he was strengthened. That's my desire for every one of you today. I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, what I want you to get from this story, I want you to think right now of the most notorious unbeliever that will never receive Jesus. Everybody has somebody. It's impossible for them to receive Jesus. You have somebody? Okay. Will you promise me that you'll begin to pray that the Lord will bring them into the light. That you'll just start praying, Lord, like that person at your school, at your work, that could never be saved, that's the one that the Lord loves to reach. Church history is filled with Saul's who became Paul's. Okay. The other thing I really want you to be praying about is that the Lord will help us to not be reluctant, that we'll be willing to be obedient to the Lord and that we'll believe, like Ananias, that when the Lord lays someone on our heart, that we're going to be asking the Lord, give us opportunity, and we're going to seize that opportunity. This is an incredible comforting passage. The Lord's going to take the worst enemy of the church and turn him to the greatest defender of the church. I want to close if you don't know Jesus, if you think it's about being good, if you think it's about having a nice ancestral religion, if you think it's about keeping nice religious rituals, then this story, like some of you are sitting here and say, well, and a lot of your friends at work think Judaism is a great religion. And so if that's true, Saul had tons of Judaism. It was a great religion from a religious standpoint. But he needed to meet the Lord from heaven. 
So I want you to be really clear on this because this is all about Jews and it's growing more and more. Even those that believe in Jesus are saying, Jesus is nice for us as Gentiles, but Jews don't really need him. That's a lie. We need to go to Haiti. We need to go to New York. We need to go to Jerusalem. We need to go into all the world because your friends at work that don't know Jesus, Jesus is the light. And I want you to know that if you will recognize that you're blind and you open your heart to the Savior that died for you and who rose again for you, you can receive sight. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you would use this incredible example of Saul who was blinded by your light, but he could see. Lord, help me today to believe that you can take those that I least expect and turn them into followers of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.